looking at the lads to leaders people who are here, and they are like zombies. You can spot them. They'll be nodding off just uh, in a wave of nod-offs across this auditorium tonight. They have every right to do that. We are not going to make you feel guilty or embarrass you for that. Paul came in saying he had a, a hard nap. He and, he and Levi, I understand, were kind of doing the dueling snorers uh, thing uh, all day. That's what, that's what Colby reported, and I'm, I'm sure that's true. Uh, I did the same thing. It's just exhausting being with all those kids, those young people, young people with all that energy. And I know we used to have that, but it's been a memory for me. But it was great, and you're going to hear some more about it. You ladies, don't forget to sign up for the ladies' retreat. It's, this is the deadline, I think, right, today? If you sign up after this, you, you just miss out, you know. And I'm sure they'll squeak you in somehow. But I'm just really, really give great consideration to that. Uh, we had 38 men, and I'm, I'm, I'm counting on you ladies to outdo us. You're supposed to do this. So if you... Uh, if you don't outdo that, we're going to have to do something um, to embarrass you a little bit. I don't know if you noticed in the announcements, but Buddy Nichols is having another surgery. And I went up to him and I said, well, what's surgery next month? What are we going to hear next month? He had a hernia last week, a foot this month. And he says it's the surgery of the month thing that he signed up for from a TV commercial. Um, and so we're going to all wager what body part comes next. But we're just going to do that privately, okay, where we are. Uh, we're in the book of Exodus. Uh, but before we start in Exodus, if you'll make your way to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, that passage that was just read sounds so weird. And I was listening to him read it, and I thought, people are going to go, what are you talking about? Well, we need to know what it talks about. We're talking about uh, you might have a hardened heart if, and the first symptom of a hardened heart is that you know what the Word of God says, but it, it doesn't matter to you anymore. It, it, it reminds me a little bit of Saul, where Saul got, if you remember when God said in 1 Samuel 15, I want you to go and destroy the Amalekites, and he says it like four or five different ways. Go in and destroy them and annihilate them and don't spare a single one and over and over. And he says it very clearly what he wants to do, but Saul misses it. Saul misses the clear word and instruction of God. And even when Samuel comes and confronts him about it, he just can't quite see what he did wrong. Uh, when, the, when the Word of God says something, God's people need to care. God's people need to listen to that, and that's enough. If it doesn't make sense, and if I don't even agree necessarily, that doesn't matter to us. What we, what we know is that God is God, and we are not, and that's what a soft-hearted. But when we get hard-hearted, when we start getting rebellious and stubborn, suddenly God's Word's not enough. And if, if we're not compelled by our own agreement, we may not do what the Word says. Our hearts have grown hard. That's what he's describing. Well, that was last week, right? This week is a different one. Here's another symptom of a hardened heart is that the only, the only sorrow we experience for it is worldly sorrow. Let me set up the story in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 because it's imperative. There's another letter. There's four total letters to the Corinthians. We only have two of them. And so we are kind of left in the dark. We don't know anything. Paul makes reference to this letter, but we don't have it. And so we're kind of going, what's he talking about? Paul had an issue. It could be that 1 Corinthians 5 thing that he's trying to fix, that man living with his father's wife, and the church is, is boastful about how gracious they are in receiving these people when they should be correcting this error. But here's what happens. Paul has a problem with the way the Corinthians are handling something, and he knows that, that if, this, if he doesn't handle this right, this church becomes unfaithful, and suddenly there's no church in Corinth. 
And so he knows, I've got to startle these people. They're not listening to me. And so he says, I've got to write this letter that he calls himself a stern letter. I've got to write them in particular about how to deal with this person, and it's going to hurt. I'm going to send this letter in the mail, and I know it's out of my hands then, and it's going to go to them, and they're going to read it, and it's going to hurt them. And they may do one of two things. This church may read this and say, forget you, Paul. We're going to do what we want to do. That's very possible. Human nature's like that. He's scared to death. Paul says, I didn't want to write it. I didn't want to send it, but I knew I had to. I had to wake you up because you guys are settling into a sinful way and you will not be a faithful church of the Lord if, if you don't stop this. And I knew I had to send this and it worried and I fretted and I lost sleep and I was so concerned about it that I just didn't know what to have. And then I hear that you received it properly and it broke your heart and you changed. I want you to join me, chapter 7, verse 8. Even if I made you grieve with that letter, if I broke your heart and startled you, I don't regret it. I did regret it. I didn't want to do it. But I see that you received the letter as it was intended. For a little while it hurt. As it is, I rejoice because not only did you grieve, because that grief, that startlement, led you to repenting. If you felt a godly grief and you suffered... No loss through us. And he goes on to describe it, and I want you to listen to this. There is a worldly grief where you feel sorrow, but it doesn't lead to any changes. I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry I'm having to pay for this. I'm sorry that I'm having to hurt for this. And if, if I could go back and hide it a little longer and get away with it a little more, I would. And if that consequence for my behavior goes away, I'll go back and do what I did before. This is when you're sorry that you got caught, and it doesn't lead to any changes at all. And many people do this. Worldly sorrow, though, godly sorrow, leads you to repent. And I want you to know this progression. It's on the screen, but it's in your text, too. And I want you to listen to what real repentance sounds like. Real godly grief, that thing where you realize what you have done and it breaks your heart because it breaks the heart of God. And you so are aware of that and you feel sorry. It produces earnestness, a sincerity. I've got to fix this at all costs. An eagerness to clear yourself. I'm not going to argue for innocence and I'm not going to point blame somewhere else. I want it out in the open. I don't want it secret anymore. I want all the lights turned on. I want everybody to see this because I want to get this right. What indignation. You're angry. You're angry at yourself. How could I have fooled myself for letting myself get into this kind of behavior? You're angry. There's got to be a sense of anger about yourself. When we see wrong, we get angry. And when we see wrong in ourselves, we get angry. How could I have done this? If you've never experienced this, I don't know how you're a Christian very long. I've been a Christian a long time, and I still do things I should be well beyond, y'all. I'll get angry and do something that just absolutely is ludicrous. It makes no sense, and I look back at myself because we as human beings have this amazing self-reflection. I can look back at myself, and I look at that and say, there is no excuse for that stupidity right there. Anybody there? You ever get mad and you think, I should be beyond this? Why, after all these years, am I still struggling with this? It makes you angry. 
And then he says, what fear? What would have happened if nobody caught this? What would have happened to my spiritual life if I didn't come to my senses right there? I would have continued walking down that path and lost my soul. What longing. I love that word. I'm going to do whatever is necessary to make this right. I long to be right again. Guys, these are descriptions of godly sorrow. What zeal. I'm enthusiastic about this new path I'm on. I've made an actual turn, and I'm going to not turn away from this again. I'm going to stay on the path of repentance the rest of my life, and I'm willing to accept discipline. I'm willing to take whatever punishment becomes along with this. You remember Jimmy Swaggart a few years ago when he got caught, you know, doing some sinful things, and then he gets mad at his denomination when they say, you've got to step out of ministry for a year. No, I'm going to skip over here, and I'm going to continue my ministry. How much repentance is it when you won't accept the discipline put on you? How sorry are you really? Guys, there's consequences when we do a sin. And sometimes it means that you lose some privileges and you lose trust in people. And when you face that with integrity, you say, I'll take, my, I'll take it. I'll take the consequences. I'll take the punishment. That's what godly sorrow does. Now, the reason I'm looking at this when we're looking at Pharaoh is that Pharaoh had occasions where he seemed to repent. If you got this chart, it's one of the most brilliant things in the history of humanity. I'll sign this later, and it'd be worth lots of money to somebody. You put this in your Bible for the next two or three weeks, going to use this. I'm kidding about that, but I just kept looking at the plagues, and how do you preach the plagues when you just one after another? But I put, them in all, put all these characteristics. I want you to know just one of them. The far, far right to you, the repentance section, you're going to notice that in two or three of these plagues, Pharaoh seems to repent. Okay, uh, the first one is, if you'll notice, uh, the plague of frogs, number two. And uh, repent. No, there's not really repentance there, but there's a prayer request. I want you to notice this. Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go sacrifice to the Lord. He's changing his mind. He's going to let the people go. Go ahead and pray to the Lord for me. Pray for me to get rid of these frogs, and I'll let them go. This sounds a little bit like repentance, doesn't it? But when Pharaoh saw there was a respite, in other words, the frogs hopped away, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Oh, well, as soon as the consequences of my stubbornness go away, so does my desire to change. This is not real repentance. Whatever this is, it's worldly sorrow. Man, I'm so tired of these frogs. I'll repent and the frogs go away and so does his intent to change. Okay, now, he doesn't repent anymore until you get down to number seven where it says hail and fire go all the way across. Yes, now this one is impressive. Listen, if I'm a preacher and I receive a card from somebody coming down the aisle that says what he says, I'm going to say, what impressive repentance. Listen to this. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, this time I've sinned. He calls it sin. This is Pharaoh's mouth. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Look at that. I've sinned. I'm wrong. The leader of the world says I'm wrong and God's right. That's impressive. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I'll let you go. You don't need to stay any longer. And here's what's interesting. 
The text says, Moses says, I will pray for you, but I know this isn't real. What kind of a preacher is that? You get a card from somebody going forward, I've sinned, I'm wrong, and the preacher just looks at you and says, we'll pray for you, boy, but I know it ain't real. What a terrible preacher. He knew something. He knew something. I don't know what it is. The text doesn't say. But then it says in verse 34, When Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased and sinned, yet again he hardened his heart, and there went the change. Suddenly, when I don't have to pay the consequences anymore, my resolve to change my life goes out the door. That rhymed, and I didn't even know it. Now, number eight, locusts. Yes, I've sinned, forgive, and pray. So when Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I've sinned against the Lord your God, against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin. Please only this once, and plead with me, the Lord your God, to remove this death from me. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the people go. Three different plagues. Pharaoh said all the nice right words, but he didn't really change. I'm telling you, Pharaoh experienced worldly sorrow where he was sad, he had to pay any cost, and as soon as the cost is removed, so is all intent to change. This is the definition of worldly sorrow. You listen to people and you watch people. Can I tell you, to be honest with you, I'm going to scare people from ever going forward again. I'm, I'm about to tell you this. When you come forward and confess your sin, it's the beginning. The church has every right to do what John the Baptist does. We need to see fruit in keeping with repentance. And if we watch, you come forward and you repent of something and you continue doing that, and you continue doing that, it's not real repentance, and we have an obligation to tell you that. We really do. Here's John the Baptist coming out and all these people doing their customary washing. Him, it's a baptism. For them, it's just an, another cleansing for them. And John the Baptist refuses. He gets so sick of baptizing these hypocrites and he says, I'm not going to do it. And here's what he says to them. You brood of vipers. That's not positive. That's not a special, wonderful term of endearment. This is a, you bunch of snakes. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And all these people start coming up, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? And depending on their station in life, he gives them an answer. Pharaoh has worldly sorrow. It sounds eerily like a politician's apology to, to keep their office. He was sorry for his suffering, but he wasn't sorry for the sin that caused it. It's easy to say the right words, I guess. But the actions have to be there. It has to be real. And you want to bring it out in the open. And you don't want to hide it from anybody anymore. And you want to get this fixed. You don't want to just slide by. You want to fix the problem. Even after the death of the firstborn, you know this, he lets the people go. But even then he changes his mind and he sends his army after them again. And then they get demolished in the Red Sea. This guy just can't seem to repent. We would call this an acknowledgement. I'm willing to acknowledge I sinned. You, you might call this some kind of move on your part, but it's, it lacks remorse. It lacks what we call conviction. I don't really mean it all that much. 
And it's a symptom of a hardened heart. And all this is a description, y'all. I I can tell you this. I can describe it for you. I remember going to youth rallies where they had that at the end. These people went for it. And if you listen to the words of what they're saying, they're they're not really repenting. They're just making statements sometimes. And you can't judge that all the time. But here's the hard part. What if you have a heart and a mind that knows you are wrong but you can't get yourself to care. You know what you've done is wrong, but your heart's not sorry. I know people in this spot, and it's the most gut-wrenching thing to watch, and especially if they want to want to. You know the difference between wanting to be sorry and wanting to want to be sorry? It's, it's an odd thing. I guess I would... I guess I would call it sort of like a person who's addicted to something. And a person who's addicted to a drug of some kind, everybody around them knows there's a problem. They can see it. Their lives are falling apart. But these people aren't able to see it. They're so just after the next hit of whatever they need. And they've never gotten to the point where they go for help. And professionals will tell you this. You are absolutely helpless as family members and friends. Until they want to, and they take hold of it, and they take responsibility of it, nothing anybody does can help. And it's the most gut-wrenching view to see, have a front row seat to somebody whose life has fallen apart, but they can't, you can't do anything about it for them. Until they're ready. Now, I'm going to tell you it gets bad because of this. Hebrews tells us there are some people who reach the point where they can no longer repent. Their heart is such that they can't be sorry. This is not that God won't forgive, that God can't forgive. It has nothing to do with God. It's the person no longer cares about what God says, anything God does to soften their heart. Listen to what Hebrews says. It is impossible in the case of those who've once been enlightened. You know, listen to this. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've shared the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. And then they've fallen away. It's impossible to restore them. What else can the Lord do? He's been kind, he's been disciplined them, he's done everything he can do, and they've experienced the best of what God has to offer. And they look at it, and they taste it, and they know it's wonderful, and they say, I don't want it, I'd rather have this over here. What more can be done? Nothing can be done. says it again in chapter 10. If you go on sinning deliberately... You know full well this life you're living is wrong and you're going to do it anyway and you go prod and forth. This is why the Old Testament had no sacrifices for what it calls intentional sin. Guys, this scares me to death. You're going to say, well, none of us have done it. I think there are people at church who come to church for years who might be prone to this. It's possible. But here's the thing. We cannot diagnose this. You don't have a right to pronounce somebody unrepentable. You might have it in the back of your head that I don't think anything we do is ever going to change this person's life. I don't think anything is ever going to bring them around. And you might think that in the back of your head, but you can't act on that. You have no right as a human being to make that verdict or give that 
diagnosis of a person. But I want you to put this in the back of your head and know this for yourself. You can reach a point where your stubbornness reaches this spot where you can no longer go back. It's the point of no return. And so what do we do? I guess one of the things I want to do is what do we do to try to make people or move people to repent? But the other thing is this. How do we make sure our hearts never get there? Because it's easy to diagnose this stuff. This part of the sermon has been easy. I can, just, I can use Pharaoh and I can tell you there's a, there's a hardness in us sometimes that doesn't care what God says and doesn't care when God disciplines us. What do we do about it? What God says in Romans chapter 2 is that his kindness and his compassion has a purpose to it. Listen to this passage. You presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to what? God's kindness to all people is meant to draw them to him. The reason he sends son, the Son on the unjust is to make the unjust come to him. The reason he sends rain on the unjust is to make the unjust come to him. The, the reason God shows kindness and common grace to even the most wicked of people is he wants them to come to him. His kindness, he's trying to woo us to him and make us want to be close to the giver. But guess what happens when we are so enamored with the blessings that we lose sight of the blesser? Guess what happens? His kindness doesn't work for this. And if God's kindness leads people to repentance, we live in the most prosperous and the most blessed nation on the face of the planet's history. And we're trying to kick him out. All these kindnesses of God that he's given us over the years, and we're saying, we'll take those blessings, get out. Stupid, stupid, stupid. I know that's a bad word to some of you, but that's the only word I know to describe that action right there. But there's another thing he says later on in Romans. It says God's sternness leads us to repentance. God also disciplines people, and in fact, Christians are to view all hardship of their lives as discipline. Hebrews chapter 12. Now, this is where I get some pushback from people, and they're going to say, what have I done wrong? Okay, you got the Calhouns right now. They're going through this difficult time, right? I, I think they're fine now. I think they're on the way, but, but this is a hardship. Anybody, anybody would describe four bypasses as a hardship. That's discipline from God. Now, that's not because they did something in particular wrong. It's a time to stop and evaluate your life. Every hardship you have is a time to stop and say, how's my life with God? An example of this is in Luke chapter 13. Do I have that next, or did I skip a verse? Jesus overhears conversation. There was a tower that fell on 18 people and killed them, and everybody thought, boy, those 18 must have been wicked, evil people. Must have been judgment for their sin. Jesus says, no, there's no connection between their sin and this disaster. But notice what he says all the people who know about this story should do. By the way, this is how we should respond to September 11th. This is how we should respond to hurricanes that hit certain parts of the world. When that happens, here's what we're supposed to do. He says, those 18 who were killed by the tower, you think they were worse than everybody else? No. When that tower fell and that disaster happened, you're supposed to show great compassion, and you're supposed to say, ooh, if that happened to me, am I okay? Every hardship you experience is a time for you to go, oh, mm, if that had happened to me, if I'd been in that building, if I'd have been in that hurricane, if that had been me in that hospital room, 
Am I okay with God? That's what discipline God is talking about in Hebrews chapter 12. God uses all of this, and by the way, the church does too. The church is to use both. When somebody comes into the congregation and they've been beaten up by life and they are in some kind of sinful lifestyle, they need to find a church that is accepting and affirming of them as people but holds out the truth firmly to them in their sin. We are to be kind, we're to be compassionate, just like God is. We do pack a sack because we want to draw people by kindness to the truth that we have, right? That's why we serve the world. But then also there's a discipline that happens. And by the way, all church discipline is not kicking people out the door. This is what I hear all the time, is we need to discipline a few more people. And I get that. And what you don't know is there's constant discipline going on in a church. Not all discipline is disfellowshipping, publicly rebuking people and sending them out the door. That's not, there's a lot of church discipline that's short of that, that's instruction, that's counseling, that's patiently dealing with people and pointing out they're wrong. We don't want to kick them out the door unless you absolutely have to because of a sin they're rebelliously engaged in. We do need people who are willing to confront, and you need to be willing to be friends with each other in such an extent as this. And I, I, I've got a couple people in my head that were no longer friends. We no longer communicate at all when once we almost did on a daily basis. This particular guy started cheating on his wife. And we would go and appeal and appeal and appeal and struggle with him through this and say, I'm going to be patient, but I'm going to be firm. And I'm going to tell you, your faith... Your walk with God is more important to me than your friendship. Do you have people who are willing to tell you the hard truth because your walk with God is more important than your walk with them? You need to have some people in here like that who are willing to come to you and point out a wrong, and if you rebelliously and stubbornly stay in that, they're willing to say, you know what? If you're not willing to work at this, then our friendship is going to be suspended for a while because we've got to, we've got to fix this. I'm going to always be here to be a voice. This particular one just takes off and leaves and goes AWOL, and for the rest, I don't know where he's at. That that's what you've got to be willing to do. We've got to practice discipline. We've got to serve and have compassion toward each other. And so every time we're compassionate with each other, we're, we're drawing each other to soften our hearts. But there's a third thing, I think, and I, I'm just going to make a reference to this. We keep teaching the truth. We keep teaching it. Uh, uh, in, in John chapter 16, did I put this screen on there? Yeah. This is the Holy Spirit's role in our lives. Listen to what Jesus says the Holy Spirit's role is to be in the life of believers and even people in the world. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. You're better off as a church if I go up back, back up to heaven, right? For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. You know what one of the roles the Holy Spirit has? Well, to guide me and yeah, all that. He's also to convict your conscience. So as we teach the truth and as that truth fades into your brain, it stays in there. The Holy Spirit will use it to convict you. And when you do something wrong... The Holy Spirit will grab hold of your brain and not let go and give you this incredible convulsion that says, I must get this right. And the thing that we need to do as a church is we need to serve each other, have compassion, and be patient with each other, but we need to discipline each other and correct each other, and we need to keep telling the truth. 
This is the hardest one to describe a remedy for because I don't know how to do it. I'm going to tell you, church, pay attention to your heart. Keep it very tender with its exposure to God all the time. Always feed it the word. Always be around other people who are determined to be faithful. Tune your heart to where it's only satisfied when it's right with God. And if something is not right with God, your entire heart yearns to get rid of that obstacle that keeps it from happening. When those moments rise up in your life, when you're tempted to allow a distance to form, make yourself obey God even when you don't want to. It's what submission is. Make sure you have enough close relationships with people who care as much about your spirit as they do about your companionship and give them permission to hold you accountable. They'll help you remember your goal even when you start being forgetful. Softening a heart like Pharaoh's is very much like standing and watching a person with addiction. I don't know that anything will ever break it, the cycle that they're on. So here is the lesson. Do not let your heart ever get to that point. Be willing to entertain the thought it could happen to you and put guards in place to keep it from getting there. Those Sunday nights when you don't want to come to church and like, I'd rather do something else, come anyway. When your best friends are out in the world and they won't hold you accountable to anything spiritual and you want to spend all your time with them, don't do it. Spend time with people who are as concerned about you spiritually as they are any other way. Make at least a couple of them the closest friends you've got who are willing to tell you the truth. And church, we need to have little repentances all the time. Repentance is not the step that leads to salvation alone. It is a daily walk that you do. And you need to be specific with your heart. And when you smart off or when you, when you do something that is hateful toward your spouse and they point it out to you, don't say, well, it's just me. You need to say specifically, I'm sorry for being hateful right there. That was wrong. And that's what keeps you accountable to yourself and to her or to him. If you ever let those little sins be no big deal, You won't be able to muster the repentance when the big sin comes along. Sustain fellowship no matter how much you want to do your own thing. And most important of all, keep repenting. When you pray in your private life, and I don't mean public prayer leads, although sometimes that might be okay. In your private life, don't just gloss over sin. Forgive me my sin, Lord. Amen. Spend some time with the Lord. Let the Holy Spirit work like he's supposed to and bring to your mind the specific things you've done and name them. And don't get so accustomed to them that you just simply say, ditto. Name the sins you committed against whom you committed them if there's a person interpersonally that you've sinned against. But you name them. If you said that bad word, you say, Lord, when I was in anger and I said these things I shouldn't have said, or when I acted on the highway like I shouldn't have said it, spend some time. We, get, we gloss over this so fast, thinking it's no big deal. I can just have a blanket. Lord, forgive me of my sin. He wants to know that you know what you've done. And when you say it, you make yourself extra sensitive for the next time it crops up in your head. And you keep it at bay. I don't like this whole thing of what is a salvation issue sin. Any sin can be a salvation issue sin if you don't repent of it. Any sin. 
that list of those people going to hell, we all make reference to murderers and adulterers, but it says liars too. Those little white lies, when you say one and you realize it, confess it specifically before God. Practice, practice constant repentance, specific between you and God. If you want to know why your prayers are so short, it's because you're not getting specific. If you spend as much time as I do enumerating your sins, you're going to be on your knees a long time. Even the sophisticated ones. Name them. And don't ever let yourself get accustomed to letting them hang around your life innocently as if it ain't no big deal anymore. Because it is. Don't let your heart get hard to where the only repentance you ever express is worldly sorrow. Be soft. Be soft. Keep that heart moldable. God likened it to clay and he wants to make something out of it, but if you harden it too early, he can't do what he wants with it. And he wants to do something special with it. If you're subject to repentance tonight, and a lot of these things I've talked about as repentance are done in your own private life. There's no need to come up here for those. But you know what? There might be occasions that you need to do one like this. And this is an occasion we provide for that. If you need to respond, make it known as we stand and sing to encourage you.